0: Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm happy to welcome John Wyver. John is a historian and media producer. He is Professor of Arts on Screen at the University of Winchester. He is Director Screen Productions at the Royal Shakespeare Company. He runs a company or co-runs a company called Illuminations, which is a company that produces films of theatre and dance and other cultural events. John, thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Kirk. You have many hats. What's the main hat out of all this? Well... The main hat at the moment is uh writing as a historian as an academic historian um i've done a lot of uh production for television. I started as a journalist as a writer for a London listings magazine called time Out. I worked for a long time as a um a producer and director of television specialising in programs about the arts and performance programs as you as you said and but really, from the beginning, um I was interested in not only making work, but trying to understand it, uh, to analyze it, to write about it, to talk with others about it in both a journalistic and academic uh, context. And um as the television and media industry has changed, as it has become harder and harder to find... The funding for the kind of work that I'm really interested in doing, and recognizing that I would be completely hopeless at trying to produce reality television or, or <laughs> like, um, I have increasingly uh, become involved in researching and writing about uh, both digital media and and television, and particularly the history of British television, and so. Uh, this year, particularly, um, I've done uh, I one production uh, for the Royal Shakespeare Company, but most of my time has been very involved in, in working on a book that is, I'm pleased to say, quite well along uh, about the history of early television in Britain. Have you thought about doing TikTok videos? Uh, you know, um, my kids, of course. Uh, are only they that's the only platform they use? They think I'm like a dinosaur, you know. The only they don't use YouTube, certainly. I think they watch YouTube, but they produce their own TikTok videos. If you could call it produce, oh, you know, I mean, the, the kind of production well, you know, the some kind of production values and the sophistication of many, many videos is absolutely extraordinary. And the yeah. the the capability of both you know, technology that you can hold in your hand and the kind of sophistication that so many uh, people have in making work uh, for for that platform and elsewhere is is completely extraordinary and so, so different from when I started, uh, you know, making television 40 years ago. So as a critic and historian of the
0: process of creating films, do you think TikTok is a good evolution or do you think it's just... You know, the, I mean, 15 second videos
1: of people dancing or doing dumb things. Um, I don't have a, I don't think I've got a kind of aesthetic judgment to pass on TikTok. I'm kind of curious about it. I don't spend much time with it. And yeah, of course, you know, somebody is pretty ancient in this media world. Uh, Actually, I really enjoy. Long-form, rigorously constructed, high production value, mentally challenging, complex uh, narratives and and, uh, documentary explorations of subjects. I'm not going to get that on on TikTok, I know that, but, you know, it's got its place. What about the Barbie movie? Uh, I think Barbie movie is, you know, it's the wrong word to use, but I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's an absolutely extraordinary achievement to make a film that effortlessly passes a billion dollars you know within like three weeks that uh, clearly appeals and entertains a vast global audience and yet is so complex and distinctive and interesting and challenging in terms of its Uh, Politics of representation, its engagement with media theory, its uh, sophisticated argument about feminism. I think it's it's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant um, achievement, and I'm looking forward to going back for a third time. Wow. It's interesting to hear someone
0: like you, who is a critic of both the content and the process, talking about it like that. Because- there's a lot of money goes into that film. It's not like you know someone shooting with two cameras in a in a small studio There's a lot of money there's big stars. The set design it's I haven't seen the movie, but from what I've seen the set design is you know creating an entire world so it could almost feel immersive yet it just seems like a two hour commercial for a toy
1: well it is that what's so great is that it is a two hour commercial commercial for a toy and um you know, clearly the creative team had to work endlessly in really complex ways with the rights owners of the of the toy to achieve what they did. So it is that. Um, and it'll sell lots and lots of toys. But it's also, you know, a highly political, rigorously argued in its way, a complex piece of, I don't know what you want to call it, kind of revolutionary pop propaganda and the fact that it can balance both of those things the fact that it can be kind of a sort of perfect exquisite expression of capitalism and the patriarchy and at the same time be a kind of rigorous critique of both of those forces is incredible I don't know, of, really don't know of another movie that does that. And it, and I. it's that, it's it's holding those two forces in balance in such a sophisticated way that I think makes it such an extraordinary thing. Don't you wish that Jean Baudrillard was still alive to write about it? <laughs> well, you know, we've got plenty of great uh, media critics and theorists to to write about it. We don't need good old Jean. Okay. Let's talk about your latest project, the history of
0: British television from 1925 to 1938. And it makes me wonder how many people were watching television in Britain in 1925?
1: Well, there is no what we would call broadcast television in 1925. It was just appointment television then? Well, no. I mean, it's not even uh, television out into the ether. What happens in the middle of March 1925 is that a Scotsman called John Logie Baird, takes this kind of homespun apparatus to Selfridge's department store and does a fortnight of demonstrations in the electrical department of Selfridge's where he'd been invited with a with a piece of of, of technology that could send really, really blurred, fuzzy images of geometrical shapes. A few down a line and be looked at uh, by staring into a cardboard funnel. These, this is eight line, eight vertical line uh, uh, media display. So you know uh, your, your television now is at least ten eighty lines uh, horizontal. This is eight lines producing images of um, crosses and so. So this is pretty basic, you know? (laughs) Um, But it is the first public presentation of seeing at a distance television that uh, takes place in in Britain. And I think it's it's legitimate to regard it as, as it were, the birth moment, the origin moment of at least British television. So we're coming up to... Uh, the centenary of that in March 2025. I want to get my book out uh, for that moment. You
0: better hurry. You know it takes a year from when you give them the final manuscript to
1: get it printed. I know. I know. Well, it's, it's coming along. So um, Baird, th- this is an experimental system that Baird refines, gives various demonstrations of and so forth. And he takes it to a big... Uh, trade fair, which was called Radio Olympia, so every year in September, all of the electronics firms went to Olympia in West London and displayed their new um you know radio receivers and valves and all of that and they do he and his company do a series of demonstrations at Radio Olympia in september twenty eight where they really again it 's only it 's a closed circuit it 's just within the kind of environments of the of the trade fair but they put together what you could what i would argue is the first schedule of programs this is interviews with uh stars of of the theater it's people doing little songs and dances it's people telling jokes it's really basic but it is a a, uh, a schedule which is uh, put on for people to to enjoy within the fair and it has a host, um, um the one of the engineers who left Bay quite soon afterwards because he didn't think television had any kind of future. But he's <laughs> a, a young guy who uh who you know acted as like the sort of MC of this. And in a sense, that's where the kind of form of television begins. You've got to remember this is still a really basic technology. So we're talking about, at that point, a 30-line system. We're talking about a screen that is no bigger than your smartphone and has the same format as your smartphone. So it's um, it's a portrait uh, image, and it can monochrome, of course, flickery, unstable, fuzzy, and it can only basically show you the head and shoulders of somebody sitting in front of the scanner. So yeah, really basic, but it is the beginning of what will, over the next decade, become, by the time what is then the BBC service shuts down at the beginning of World War Two, is absolutely recognisable as broadcast television.
0: Now, I'm thinking, compare that to the way television is today. And I've attended some of the performances at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre that you've filmed, and I've seen the cameras. And when you think back to that 8-line or 30-line image, and now you look and you've got, what, six or eight cameras, you've got cameras on dollies, you've got a crane, you've got trucks outside for the production. Okay, it's been a century, but still the
1: change is several orders of magnitude, isn't it? The change in technical terms is absolutely several orders of magnitude. I mean, the Sophistication of the cameras that we use at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the audio systems that we work with, the the kind of definition, the quality of the image, the work that we can do in post-production with the grading and all of that. I mean, all of that is kind of unthinkable when you when you compare it to the early the early television. But actually, by the time that Thirty-line system has gone through really less than ten years of development. So, I would take that that system through to the autumn of 1938, which is when the BBC, that has taken over the Baird company's um, operations, does its first live broadcast from a theatre in the West End. It, it takes the whole evening. Of the schedule. To do a multi camera live presentation of a J.B. Priestley play called When We Are Married in the autumn of 1938. The, they're using three cameras, they're 405 line cameras. They've got two microphones. They've thrown a massive amount of additional light on the stage to get a decent image. But essentially, that is what we are still doing you know, in the second decade of the 21st century. And the the continuities between that bit of early television and, you know, what we do at the RSC are very, very strong. Just as I would argue, you know, the continuities with a sort of uh, a talent show like the X Factor or whatever, are really strong with what uh, Baird and his colleagues were doing at Radio Olympia in, in 1928. So technically, we're, there's been a vast improvement in the system and, and profound change. But in some of the cultural forms, in some of the kind of ideas of language, in some of the ways in which television speaks of what it is doing, there are really strong continuities and yet we still call it the Idiot Box. Well, I don't call
0: it the Idiot Box. <laughs> I know. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about your books and how you use script. Literature and Latte are proud to be long-term sponsors of NanoRimo. Completing a 50,000-word draft in just one month is hard, but picking the right app for the job will help you reach your goal. Tailor-made for long writing projects... Scrivener is the go-to app for NanoRimo, combining all the tools you need to get writing and keep writing through November and after. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone, and we offer an extended 45-day NanoRimo trial for the Mac and Windows versions. Book for it in the sponsor offers section of the NanoRimo forum. All those taking part can get a 20% discount on Scrivener for Mac or Windows using the code NanoRimo23 from October 15 through December 7. That's NaNoWriMo 23. NaNoWriMo winners will get 50% off once their win is verified. We wish you the best of luck in reaching your goal this year. Okay, we've talked about television. It's really interesting. I want to talk about your books now and particularly the fact that you've used Scrivener to write most or all of your books. Do you use Scrivener also to write academic papers? Is it your go-to
1: writing tool? It's completely my go-to writing tool. I, I, you know, it's an absolutely essential piece of, of software. I I use the uh, the Mac OS version on my MacBook Air. I do everything through Scrivener. I use it for drafts. Uh, I use it for structuring and planning, and I use it to gather all, almost all of my research materials. So I will put a lot of PDFs, a lot of uh, images, um, a lot of uh, obviously a lot of notes that I take from books into uh, a Scrivener project, and that becomes absolutely the way that I that I draft, uh, write, finish both books and and journal articles. Yeah,
0: your last book that came out in 2019 is called Screening the Royal Shakespeare Company: A Critical History, and I can imagine that in order to research that. You were going back over the decades and you had a lot of information to store. What's the process like for that sort of historical research? Well, that
1: that book is uh, uh, an attempt to draw together the various screen adaptations that have been made of productions mounted in Stratford by the Royal Shakespeare Company since 1961 and by the companies that preceded the RSC in Stratford over the previous century. Um, That involved uh, identifying as many as I could of those screen versions um, and tracking them down, tracking them down as uh, DVDs, as films uh, that could only be viewed in archives, um, as bits that you could occasionally find on online in YouTube or whatever, and uh, bits that uh, people sent me as digital files. Um, and then having compiled a sort of timeline as much as I could, and of course you refine and develop that timeline, but essentially working out the timeline, then doing a lot of uh, research um, around each of those productions to try to contextualize it in relation to the history of the company and a broader cultural and social history, and for that um I was working with a lot of um online databases, so I would say that um you know the my practice and the practice of every modern historian has been transformed by the availability of um most newspapers being digitized and and online. I mean that is a absolutely transformational uh, framework. Um, Over well, I'm old enough to remember in high school going to the library and looking at the microfiches of the New York Times. Exactly, and now that's all searchable. It's all available at touch of a button, as long as you've got a subscription. So that's incredibly important. Um, and Pulling down, um, you know, uh, pulling out, uh, PDFs of articles and loading them into the relevant folders on, on the research part of, of Scrivener, really important. Equally, going through, uh, a lot of, uh, other academic books which have written about or engaged with these, uh, productions, either Taking photographs in, you know, the British Library or other libraries where one's able to take photographs of pages for your own research and loading them into Scrivener and, uh, or, or taking, uh, you know, type notes of particular sections. And then, you know, um, one of the great, you know, I really am an enthusiast, but one of the great things about being able to work with a horizontally split screen is, uh, you know, it's that's how I do so much with writing. So I'll have, uh, in the lower screen, I'll have the text that I'm typing, writing, compiling, and in the upper screen, I'll have a page of a PDF or a uh, a JPEG or whatever, which I can uh, refer to and, and draw across from. And that kind of really basic comparative way of working is um is you know absolutely what I spend a great deal of my time doing and it's a, a really good way of working. You must have had hundreds
0: of sources. You you said something interesting that I hadn't thought about. You can take photos of pages of books. And you know back in the day you had to get photocopies. And of course there were problems with rights for photocopies, which is fair and now with like the latest iPhone, you can take a photo and then you can extract the text. And when you think about how much has changed in a couple of decades for research and how easy it is now to get research into a project, a folder, or a file, it really makes a huge difference. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean there are you know, there are things that um that are still quite tricky to work with. Um uh I, I was at um an archive, not, not the British Library. I was at an archive of a museum uh, last week, in fact, where, um, they, uh, I, I was looking at some documents from the 1930s, not valuable documents, but just kind of files of correspondence. They insisted that I, I wear latex gloves to handle this. And they maybe made me list every page that I took a photograph from and assign back to the institution the copyright in the photograph that I took, which I thought was, you know, pretty, I was happy to do it, sort of, but I thought it was, I thought that was quite um, onerous, uh, you know, as uh, on a researcher. The, The British Library, the London Library, the National Archives are all three wonderful, wonderful places to work. And I'm, I'm Unbelievably grateful to the staff and uh, the organizations of each of those three institutions, because they totally make it possible to to be a scholar working and developing books at some relative speed i mean it still takes you know two to three years to write anything. I was going
0: to ask, how long does it take when you're doing that kind of research? You're travelling around the country to visit archives
1: and museums, and and it's not all online. No, it's not all online. And of course, some of the most interesting stuff is stuff that is um, uh, undigitized and and indeed hasn't been looked at, you know, since it was written or filed away. I mean, the one of the absolutely key sources, which is another great place to work, is the. What's called the BBC Written Archives, which is in a, a building on the edge of Reading, um, a Caversham, um, and they have all of the production files that exist of BBC programmes that go back to the early nineteen twenties. And you, when you you have to know which files you want, so it takes you years to understand the system. But when you call up these files. If they have not been uh, reviewed by an archivist, um, then an archivist has to go through it and check that there isn't anything, you know, any any kind of information about living people or whatever that needs to be redacted, and then you get a little little tag in the front of the um, file that says who has reviewed it and when they reviewed it, and if it's been reviewed by the archivist with whom you're working last week, you know that only you and the archivist uh, have opened that file since the early 1930s. And of course, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a thrill that any historical researcher will, will recognize. Have you gone back to, I want to say, the Elizabethan
0: times and looked at documents like that as part of your research? You've seen the first folio. There is one in Stratford upon Avon. You can see what it looks like. You can't. It's in a glass case, so
1: you can't touch it. Yeah, I've never touched one. You know, I have the highest admiration for people who work with kind of really historical documents, and uh, particularly colleagues who uh, work on uh, early modern literature, or on the play texts from that time, or the diaries, or the account books, and so forth. Um, the work I've done writing about Shakespeare and early modern plays has really been about adaptations, has been about modern forms that uh, those texts are taken on the street. Um, I'm always thrilled to go to an exhibition to see one of those originals. You know, you can go to the British Library and see one of the, what is it, three or four documents that has what is thought to be um, a genuine signature by William Shakespeare. Uh, of course, that's a thrill, but it's um, you know I leave uh, I leave working on a day to day basis with that stuff to colleagues who know far more about it than I do.
0: I was very impressed when I went to Salisbury Cathedral and saw the Magna Carta. Sure, and that's a contemporaneous document they
1: have there, right from the yeah. 13th century. Yeah, there are. Th- I think there are three copies that were made uh in the in the early thirteenth century um and the the british library has one as well um uh you know that's it's that's great uh-huh. i also you know i'm i'm pretty thrilled to see uh the manuscripts of the wasteland or um you know the the handwritten lyric that I think the British Library have of the Beatles yesterday, you know, it's- there's something
0: about those documents that the context gives them such incredible
1: value, right? Yeah, and then and they're sort of medieval. They, they have the same kind of quality of, of having a sort of direct relationship with major historical figures that uh, objects in you know in med- medieval religion had, as it were. That were revered as um the historical touchstones right yeah you know it's uh, and i i um i I think you can take all that stuff too far, and I don't really get why you would want to collect that stuff and pay you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for original manuscripts um but the fact that I can uh, see them, access them, um, maybe work with them in public institutions is hugely, hugely important. Yeah, until the billionaires
0: snarf them all up because they've got money to burn.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the First Folio. Um, you know, there are something like a hundred. There are two hundred and sixty copies of the First Folio, the first printing of the Shakespeare's collected plays made in that sixteen twenty three. Um there are maybe they think that maybe five hundred were printed, there are two hundred and eighty maybe still extant. A hundred of those are in the Folger Library, in Washington DC, because Mr Folger at the end of the nineteenth century in the early twentieth century went around all the kind of houses of Great Britain who were selling you know, who were suffering from uh tax and, and agricultural duties and so forth and were selling off their treasures. And he bought up 100 uh, copies of the first folio, first folio. I sort of I don't really get that. I kind of kind of admire it, but it does, it's, not, um, it's not how I want to spend my life or, or my billions. It seems like they would be better in 100 different libraries. Exactly. Yeah, of course that's right. But, you know, that's not the way the world is. Okay.
0: I'd like to ask my guests if they have a book that they'd like to recommend to our listeners, something
1: you've read recently or one of your favorite books. Oh, wow. Uh, I have just read, I've just finished um, Ed Conway's Material World. Ed Conway is the science and data editor of Sky, and his written is fascinating, very, very engagingly written. I mean, it's a very, he's, got a, he's got a very light touch with his prose. Fascinating study of six key materials that underpin the structures of our world. From uh, you know sand um, uh, and its place in uh, not only construction but all sorts of other industries, um, uh, through more obvious ones like steel and oil, through to lithium, and he, he's um, it's a it's a fascinating study of where that stuff comes from, out of which bits of the earth uh, and the processes it goes through. And all of the kind of political and economic uh, questions and issues that mining that material and refining it, and then, you know, having the challenge often of, of disposing of it, poses for a world that is, you know, hurtling towards climate catastrophe. So it's a really, really good book that combines a bit of history, a bit of travel, and some really pertinent questions about the political and social moment that we're living through. Okay, John Wyver, links in
0: the show notes to your company Illuminations and to other pages such as your page on the University of Winchester. And thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's been a delight. Thanks very much for the invitation, Kirk. If you like the podcast,
0: please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener.